Hello, fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we examine Hollywood's redheaded stepchildren. As a redheaded stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And I'm Andy Bowell. And today we are pulling back Hollywood's crypt to review William Goldman and Rob Reiner's true classic, The Princess Bride. And I feel like we should start with the In Case You Missed It just to get it out of the way because in case you missed this movie somehow, if you have been living under a rock for the past 30 plus years, The Princess Bride is the famed tale of Buttercup and Wesley, lovers who are torn apart by fate, finding their way back to each other through a tale of sword fights, circus performers, six-fingered men, and true love. Love. This this might be an episode. This might be the first episode where I could get away with not putting drops. Yeah. Because we can just quote all of the best parts of this film (laughs) by heart. As can the listeners. Absolutely. It was so hard to pick a quote because with this movie, it's just so ingrained in the psyche. Mm -hmm. I... I have yet to meet someone who hasn't seen this movie. Sure. That's how ingrained it is. Absolutely. And and to speak on that point, when we got this, um, when this pulled up on the list, you were questioning its veracity as a cult film. And I know Alex was as well. You were like, this is not cult. It's The Princess Bride. It's It's a seminal movie of, like, everyone's childhood. And yet... And yet... It apparently made no money. It bombed in the box office. Which is fascinating to me. And it's fascinating to me too. I mean, this is this is yet another film where, like, this movie has Blockbuster to thank. Mm. But I think where some of those movies are, are truly, like, flawed films that just found an audience through home video like showgirls um this is a brilliantly constructed movie but i think it has such a like you gotta thread the needle with Mm buy-in on this film and there are things where i can see to a earlier film going audience that they're like what is actually going on here the biggest thing being the framing device of the entire film well and even that they tried to buy in with the audience of the time by casting fred savage as the little boy (laughs) america's kid brother fred savage who at the time was at the height of his powers with wonder years Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so it's like Oh, hey, we're really going to try with this. But, like, just the the conceit that, like, this is a very meta... Sto- technically, this is a story within a story. Sure. Technically, this is the film about a wonderful grandfather reading a true adventure classic to his sick grandson. Mm-hmm. And the grandson is, like a petulant little boy of the 80s about it until he is <laughs> caught up with the wonder. <laughs> well, and I think, okay, so you have never read the book. Correct. So 
reading rec early in the show, um, The Princess Bride is a really beautiful novel by William Goldman. And I had to read it, I think, for like 10th grade English or whatever. Um, but within the book, Goldman makes this whole case that it's the most beautiful book ever written and he wished he'd written it. Interesting. Because he, in his book, is using a framing device as this was passed down and it was a mysterious book somehow like written in Italy by some fantastic author by a completely different name. I can't remember off the top of my head. Mm. But even the book has a framing device of like, this is the most beautiful tale. I wish I had written it. So the use of the the use of the framing device in the movie actually makes a ton of sense to me because it's an old man telling his grandchild it's the most beautiful book. There's sword fights, there's adventure, there's kissing, yeah, but like sure, but there's also sports. Mhm. Getting killed by pirates is good. <laughs> yeah, so so on the one hand, I can see where audiences might be like, what's going on? What's happening? I don't know where this comes out in relation to um, the never-ending story, but I know that's another one where it's like framed as a book and then here's what's happening in the book. But getting into that, Fred Savage and Peter Falk, grandfather and grandson, I don't even know if he has a name. Mm-mm. Grandpa. Bill, Billy. Oh, yeah, yeah, the kid. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, Grandpa's name is Grandpa. There is a relatability mm-hmm. to an extent. Now, on the one hand, there's an unrelatability because for 1987, Billy's room is like amazing. It is lit. This is a well-to-do child who has like an Atari in his bedroom and this really amazing bed setup where like he can just look over his shoulder and see all of his toys and a half empty open bag of Cheetos and like I'm jealous of this kid's room but Billy the grandson in his affectation in his performance in his dialogue is absolutely such a perfect encapsulation of like a nine-year-old boy mm-hmm. who's sick and doesn't really want to be here doing this, but, like, is gonna go with it until the point where he's, like, saying, no, Grandpa, you're telling the story wrong. Mm-hmm. Now, that said, when he's in the beginning and he's being, like, just a perfect, petulant little eight-year-old, nine-year-old, ten-year-old, whatever about it, there is the bit where the Grandpa's, like, And Buttercup was going to be murdered by pirates. And he goes, murdered by pirates is good. And this is an infinitely relatable thing to me because I can remember as a young boy, uh, my parents trying out a new church that was like, it was the first time we'd gone. We were just trying to find a new place to go to church. And it was a story I want to say... Not Jezebel, but the evil queen. The evil queen of the Bible. I don't remember the name. There's a lot of evil queens in the Bible. Okay, the one who is torn apart by wild dogs. Uh, Are you sure this is a Bible? Yes. Okay. Because, and so the the name doesn't quite matter. The, The preacher is talking about this evil queen who's torn apart by wild dogs. 
And from the back, you hear an 11-year-old go, <laughs> cool. <laughs> Was that 11-year-old you? Yes. And we did not go back the next week. <laughs> my parent, maybe the most embarrassed I've ever made my parents in a public setting. <laughs> One, I love that for you. Two, this makes sense because I think Fred Savage is kind of the buy-in, stand-in metaphor for the audience. Absolutely, yeah. So it's like, hey, let me tell you a story. I'm kind of going to invite you into it, backslash drag you along. Mm -hmm. And that's why I feel part of this movie... I want to say this movie is the most marketable movie. It's so easy. It applies to every age frame. And then it bombed in box office, so I have no idea. <laughs> the only other thing I can think of is there is sort of a... People have written papers about this that go more into depth, but like there are certain subgenres that just do not play well mm. in certain time periods. Mm. For the longest time, it was cowboy movies do well other mo superhero movies don't do well. And then it was <laughs> pirate movies do well and nobody cares about Westerns anymore. And the moment we're living in right now is the superhero film is king and it's harder for other things. So the only thing I can imagine is that 1987 film audiences were not necessarily interested in a fantasy adventure story. Sure, that makes sense. Because they were too busy with all the cool new vampires and Reaganomics. Speaking of Reaganomics, <laughs> we had a whole discussion while watching this about, okay, who was president at the time this movie came out? Which at the time was Reagan, because there's this whole... The reason you thought of it is there is this whole emptying of Thieves' Village. I was trying to sit here and be like, okay... Prince Humperdinck, our villain, mm -hmm. has to be modeled after some politician of the time. Sure. And I was sitting here thinking that he was a Bush one allegory just with the like, I'm a warmonger and I'm going to crack down on the poor parts of town for no good reason. <laughs> and I'm trying to sit here and, and we paused the movie and had a discussion about trying to figure out, okay, wait, who, who might Prince Humberding be based off of? Okay. Reagan was the president. That doesn't, that doesn't feel quite right. And then you aptly pointed out that, okay, what about the novel who was president when William Goldman wrote the novel? And it's fucking Richard Nixon. It's Tricky Dick. And it immediately made sense. Because who is most famous for wanting to deceive the shit out of his people? Oh, you know, the guy who got caught saying the bad things. Yeah, the one who said the quiet part out loud on tape. Oh, no. <laughs> so. Those are inside thoughts, Dick. <laughs> And at the same time, I, I think I even pointed out, like, I might just be completely pulling at strings here. But at the same time, everything is political. Mm -hmm. But at, on the other hand, a fantasy villain can just be a fantasy villain. For sure. But, I mean, there's the part of me that had a love of Firefly until I realized it was libertarian porn fantasy. Oh, sure. And I was like, oh, oh, this doesn't, this doesn't quite hit the same way anymore. <laughs> now, mostly dead, he's slightly alive. Now, all dead, 
Well, with all dead, there's usually only one thing that you can do. What's that? Go through his clothes and look for loose change. <laughs> Speaking of writing, the plot escalates really quickly. Yes. So there's there's like five minutes of exposition. Mm-hmm. And then we get, and all of a sudden she's married to some, she's proposed to someone else, engaged to someone else, and we don't really see the transition. And I remember that being the same in the book, too. Like, there is not much, like, explaining how it happens. It's just like, so anyway, Buttercup's here. Which you were leading me to believe we're going to have to have, like, a difference of opinion about this. I think this is the perfect amount of exposition. We need to set up that Buttercup and Wesley are in love, and maybe she's a little bit of like a power top with the way she likes ordering them around. <laughs> um, they're in love. He has to go away. But the important thing is, I need you to know these people who grew up together are in love. Okay, you know that. Good. Okay, reasonable amount of time for everything else to happen in this plot. Uh, five years. Okay. She's a princess. The evil prince wants to marry her. Now let's get on with the actual bit of the movie. And you know what? That's fair. I think it's just more my brain being like, something happened there. You hope it's a miracle. Well, and, and I will say like Goldman and whoever wrote the script, which I imagine. Was Goldman been, Yeah. Himself. Okay. So Goldman wrote the book and the script. So which, which is what you want. Goldman is able to include like just enough background at every point in time. It's like Humberdink chose Buttercup out of the commoners of the village because he wanted to ingratiate himself to the people and marry a commoner. And so that's okay. That's why we have yeah. Princess Buttercup, who was a commoner, who was in love with Les Wesley, which is the only part you need to actually like remember. Now let's get to the adventure. Let's get in, get out, blow your mind, make wonder, do what we need to do. And there is not a single page of this script, I feel like, that is out of place or is, like, unnecessary. I'm going to go ahead. This isn't my Oscar, so we can talk about it now. Um, This is maybe a top five written script of all time in my mind. There's a gaping plot hole and it's there still is, so good. There is one gaping plot hole where you're like, well, wait, how do Fezzik and Inigo know these things that they were not there to know? And it goes, ah. Don't worry about it. They're magic. Don't worry about that. Here's the most perfect dialogue in cinema. Mm-hmm. Watch this. And you go, yes, I will. Mm, yes. I think this does a lot of like really wonderful things. And every time I watch this film, I kind of ruminate on the capital A adventure film. Okay. Which is like, I think a subgenre that was, you know, was actually at its peak in the eighties, but everybody was watching Indiana Jones. Maybe that's it. Maybe people didn't like princess bride because it wasn't fighting Nazis. Um, the adventure movie, which, you know, goes back to Errol Flynn playing Robin Hood, which is a huge, like, obvious thumbprint on this film and on the character of Wesley. Um, but, like, this is maybe the perfect adventure film. It's funny. It's quotable. It is safe for the whole family. It might scare a four-year-old, but... 
you're a four-year-old. Sometimes you need to get scared and you need to learn what fear is safely. And this movie does that. <laughs> Stephanie's <laughs> eyes just widened. Cue um, to me being so worried about your childhood. No, because the thing is, I saw Labyrinth when I was three and it terrified I know. me. I know. I'm so upset at your parents for some of the parenting choices they made. But like, I remember like... So the pain machine, the thing yeah. that kills Wesley, that's, that, that's frightening to a young child is like, hey, here's this water wheel that sucks out your life and kills you. Oh, OK. Oh, my God. I'm a four year old and I'm grasping the concept of mortality for the first time. <laughs> that said, like you have this, you have 1999's The Mummy, which is the other like, I would say, perfect adventure film. Mm hmm. Then we kind of, like, devolve into Jerry Bruckheimer, Pirates of the Caribbean, National Treasure. And I think the American adventure film is currently, if not dead, hibernating. Well, it's tied up in a different genre because right now right. American adventure is about superheroes. And the problem with superheroes is that they're not as identical. Identi identifiable as an adventurer right like because you could train for 25 years and become a wesley or an ego you can't suddenly gain powers well and there's something different like i'm thinking about the batman which just mm -hmm. came out and everybody loves and, and neither of us have actually seen as of yet um but like the batman has adventure in it yeah but I would I would very much say is not an adventure film. Yeah. Adventure films involve rescuing damsels or rescuing the male counterpart of damsels or dangles? Damsers? We'll work on it. We'll work on it. We'll workshop it. <laughs> it it in, it involves sword fights and maybe a a light sprinkling of something mystical but not outright magic not outright technology superhero it's it's chases and it's sword fights indiana jones has sword fights yeah um but this has the most memorable sword fight scene I would argue yeah this is one of the greatest sword fights in like cinema yeah um speaking of course about the sword fight between wesley and Inigo, which i realized in rewatching last night i was like oh this shaped me <laughs> in a really specific way uh-huh uh -huh, say more <laughs> no <laughs> <laughs> well so, like, I mentioned Errol Flynn, and there's obvious Errol Flynn. You know, Carrie Ells has the Errol Flynn he mustache. Looks like he looks like Errol Flynn. There's the the charming nobility of mm -hmm. Wesley and of Inigo and of Fezzik, and I would argue of Buttercup, but we can talk more on that later. There's there the the thing is, this is a real sword fight that Mandy Patinkin and Carrie Ells, like, focused and trained for two weeks to do by hand. Oh, I love that. By themselves. And compare that to the fight scene in the uh, Revenge of the Sith between Obi-Wan and Anakin, which they trained for three weeks to do, but it's so, like... 
CGI and jumping around and we're covering stuff up and we're making it look like you're somewhere you're not. And even going back to Pirates of the Caribbean, I think about the second Pirates of the Caribbean movie and there's this amazing three-person dual scene between Jack Sparrow, Orlando Bloom, and Commodore, I forget his name. Um, but like that again is like, oh, and we're going to have this great like, there's going to be this wheel that rolls and you're running on the wheel and you're jumping around and it's CGI and the Princess Bride is two dudes on a closed set. It's got a little bit of camp in that you can clearly see where the mats are and like there's the pole that they both do gymnastics on and you can see like, okay, clearly that's like a balance beam that like you can see where their hands are supposed to go. But it's so viscerally real. There yeah. is no special effect. Yeah. And that raises it in my mind. Yeah, because it's it's a table made of wood. There's not veneer. There's not extra coating where it feels laminated. It's just, here is this actual real thing. And it's just so, it's so beautiful to watch because it's, more genuine yes i want to say more genuine and and just like without selling anything that came after it short it it is more impressive i do feel like it's Mm -hmm. it's here's two guys that trained their asses off and everything on screen is what you see like the most special effects they get is there there's a bit where Anigo's sword goes flying in the air and he does this jump and then very clearly somebody drops a second sword in a way that like, okay, that part is false, but that's about it. Mm -hmm. There's no CGI wheel. To go to your table metaphor, it's watching somebody handcraft a table versus somebody like making a prop and then like CGI digitally putting in a more impressive looking table. Mm-hmm. That's that's the comparison. Yeah. You seem a decent fellow. I hate to kill you. You seem a decent fellow. I hate to die. And I think there is something to everyone in this movie other than Andre the Giant has a story of injury because they were just willing to go there. Right. And the only injury that Andre the Giant sustained was apparently holding in his laughter and bruising a rib from doing so. Yep, yep, because Billy Crystal was just too funny. Which, you know what? Fair. Very fair. But yeah, like, I don't know what Mandy Patengans was, but I know Cariel's cracked his skull open because he told Christopher Guest, no, actually hit me with the sword hilt. And Christopher Guest did, and then Cariel's skull was broken. Oh, honey. I think actually Buttercups was just, I was cold the whole time and Andre the Giant would walk around just like having his hand on top of her head and being like, here, child, I will protect you. Which is wonderful, I think. He's the most gentle human. We're kind of going all over the place. I want to say everybody in this film, like everybody in this film is amazing. And I don't think there's a bad performance in the role Mm -hmm. or in the entire film. With that said, can we talk about Andre the Giant? Oh my god, yes please. Just great giant king of softness and good in our hearts. I read that he um, called everyone boss to kind of just like 
demute himself, I guess is the word I'm be diminutive. Yes. And just like, remember, I am giant, but also like, I am soft teddy bear of a man. Yeah. I, I am a sweet, sweet person and kind of in pair with that. Uh, people would ask Andre the Giant what his favorite part of being in the film was, and he would say, nobody's looking at me. Because he was so used to being, like, the circus performer, statured person who everybody can't help but stare at. Yeah. And in this film, that's not what's happening. And it's so pure because we have... Um, Fezzik as this gentle giant whose feelings get hurt really easily. We see that in the first five minutes of meeting him. And then we have Inigo and how they take care of each other is very beautiful. This movie maybe, if not invents, highlights a positive... Um, example of masculine care for each other and, and masculine platonic intimacy. Yeah. Like they are best friends. They look out for each other. They care for each other. They protect each other's hearts and, and souls. And it's really dear and tender to see. Yeah. And the other side <laughs> of the ping pong table. <laughs> Our other dude pairing is Count Rugen and Prince Humperdinck and the fact that they've totally boned. They are clearly in love with each other. (laughs) Or at the very least, Rugen is in love with Humperdinck. I don't know. Humperdinck has that whole line of like, oh, you know I love to watch your work, but between marrying my wife and then murdering her, I'm just swamped. Well, and the other thing is, so you see Rugen and Humperdinck and when they're not like on horseback, they are shoulder to shoulder. They are as close as like you can get in their physical presence. And there's a moment where third in command doesn't matter what his name is. Captain guard dude um, has a couple scenes with Humperdinck and like, he tries to like lean in to like hear his orders and Humperdinck gives him like this look and third in command guy like backs off a foot. So they make it really clear. Like, no, no, no. I do not like my physical space being interrupted unless it's with my evil boyfriend. Oh, my evil boyfriend. <laughs> so you have like on the one hand a really positive look at masculine like platonic intimacy. And then I I don't even know if it's a critique. I mean, there's the fact that they're both villainous and this was a problem in the eighties of like queer coding your villains. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I don't know where to land on the, like it's good versus it's bad, but I think I had never noticed it until this viewing. It is very clearly naked on the page that like they are involved. What else do you think he does with those six fingers? Oh, Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) But I think there's also something too of Humperdinck never, um, never do we see him be intimate with Buttercup. Never do we see her, him and her in lust for each other or be physical in any way. 
disregarding that Buttercup never would because she's in love with Wesley, there's never even an attempt. Yeah, it's very clear that Humperdinck has no interest for this either. Yeah. Like, that's why I, I truly wonder if it's a queer coding thing or if it's a, no, he's just a warmongering narcissist who's incapable of any feeling of lust besides his war boner. Poor Kano Dose. Yeah. But I do think it's interesting that, you know, he rushes through the marriage and at the very end of the movie, there's not even a fight. It's just he is threatened with violence and runs the other way because at his base, he's a coward. Yes. And that is, I think, it's really wonderful direction and writing and and acting by Chris Sarandon to be like, at the end of the day, the first and capitalized character trait of Prince Humperdinck is cowardice. Yeah. But I kind of want to go back a second and talk about that. So I dearly love the trio of Fezzik and Ego and Vizzini mm-hmm. because they are so boiled down to skill sets mm-hmm. but at the same time so deep and wonderful and lovely we've talked about Anigo and and Fezzik but like Anigo's thing is he's agile he's the swordsman Fezzik's thing is he is a literal mountain of a man he is the giant he is the strong one he is the brute squad he is the brute squad you are the brute squad <laughs> And Vizzini, despite being villainous and and played beautifully by Wallace Shawn, like he is intelligent. He's he's cruel. He is intelligent, but he, I'm 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 gonna get to this. He is intelligent. He is a planner. He is a manipulator. His thing is his wits. Um, it's played for comedy in the Iacane powder scene. But the thing is, so you have these three people who are basically boiled down to character traits, and then Wesley bests them all. Mm-hmm. He's more agile than Inigo. He is stronger than Fezzik in that he's able to put him in a sleeper hold and and win that fight. He's smarter than Vizzini by out-cheating the cheater. The whole point of the Iacane Powder scene is, at the end of the day, Wallace Shawn cheats and thinks he wins, but Wesley cheated better from the beginning. He is more intelligent. He has greater wit. Mm -hmm. And so you go to the finale, you go to the final confrontation between Wesley and Humperdinck, and it's a fourth thing. It is just his pure confident charisma his his ability to instill fear and press on that cowardice mm-hmm. of Humperdinck that allows him to best him in the end I think it's that he's really good at reading people like yeah. ultimately Wesley's skill set is that he knows instantly when looking at a person oh I like that so when he um when Buttercup says don't if if I go with you, will you promise not to hurt him? Will you promise to keep him alive? Because Buttercup is at best trusting, <laughs> at worst simple. Listeners, we have an argument because I think Buttercup is like an actual character with merit and Stephanie does not. I think she's, insert name here, fan fiction. That's a human. Like she's not a person. She's just like, what? 
okay, sure. But maybe that's my wanting a heroine with actual grit. Although she does throw a man off a mountain before realizing that he's her long lost love. So you know what? Maybe I'm wrong. Helmstever. I forgot my original point. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> um, talking about her being, talking about Wesley in relation to her trustworthiness. Okay, so when she is trustworthy in the forest, she says, well, you promise not to hurt him. He, she leaves and he looks at um, Count Rugen and says, okay, we're, we're men of honor. Lies do not become us. You're gonna fuck me up. I know this to be true. Let's just get on with it. Actually hit me with the sword. It's okay. I can take it. <laughs> I can take it. I'm America's sexual awakening, Carrie Ellis. Yeah, you know? Um, so that's that's fair. And I can I can hear your point about Buttercup. Like, at the end of the day... She does fit into the 80s princess trope. Yeah. She's not Leia grabbing a blaster and shooting a hole in the panel so that everybody can escape. But I do think that there is a a nobility in her character. And there is like a, I am, I am good and true in ways that are... That, that are not nothing. Her, her, her constant defiance of Humperdinck in the back half of the movie of like, doesn't matter what you say, my boyfriend's gonna fucking come and cut your nose off. Yeah. And I think I like Buttercup each time I watch this movie more. Mm. Because more and more and more, I notice different things about her. But when I first saw this at like 10, 12, sure. I was like, you just... Did you not see that this was going <laughs> to... You're dumb as hell. <laughs> and you know what? Fair enough. I, I love your point about Wesley and his true skill being his ability to read people because I instantly fill in the headcanon of he learned that with Buttercup. Yeah. And the ability for her to like say something mean to him and he knows that she was really saying, I'm desperately, hopelessly in love with yeah. you. Um, so thank you for that. That's like... I'm going to enjoy that connection now every time I see the movie. Under you, Princess Barkwap. Man and wife, say man and wife. Man and wife. The other thing that you helped me realize and tying into Buttercup and Wesley are, are fine. They are our protagonists. Wesley is Aeroflynn mixed with Zorro and is brilliant. Buttercup is the noble, perfect princess. And I can see why you would kind of write them off, especially as a little kid, because very clearly the emotional heart of this film is Mandy Patinkin's and Eagle Montoya. Yeah. So one of the things that I shared with you last night that I'm surprised you hadn't read, but like, I, I may have forgotten it. it. It was news when you told me. <laughs> but the whole thing of Inigo Montoya was as he was, as Mandy Patinkin was filming this, his father had just died of cancer. Mm -hmm. um, and so his emotional motivation behind this role is talking to cancer as the six-fingered man. Right. Something that gripped a little too quickly that he wasn't ready for. He wasn't ready to lose his father. And... 
dealing with loss and with grief. Um, and he said later in, in an interview that it kind of felt like being the Wizard of Oz. Like, everyone knows who you are. Um, and he's like, I walk down the street and I have like two or three people quote this to me a week. Yeah. Um, but where that power and that connection comes from is that he so clearly plays the role as like, here is my heart on the screen for right. you. It is one of the most raw, powerfully important to the actor performances I think ever. Yeah. And it just it 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 in a good way it sucks the emotional air out of any room it's in when he's talking about that. The moment where he's in the forest and he's praying on the sword of his father to just like make some miracle happen so that I can find the person who will help me. And it does. The moment where Rugen locks the door and and Inigo is running up against him and bashing it and he's screaming for Fezzik to help him because he's getting away. And if he gets away, I will not be able to avenge. And if Cancer gets away, I will not be able to cathartically defeat it. It... Inigo screaming Fezzik he's getting away is like the most heartbreaking moment in the entire film yeah um, it's brilliant it's it's amazing yeah and I think it pairs really well that at the end his Inigo's conflict is I've I've been wanting this for so long it's finally happened what do I do now and the emotional tie-in bow of Wesley being like, well, I don't want to be Dread Pirate Roberts anymore. You have nothing to do and are an expert swordsman. You already have the whole alcoholic thing going on. You fucking look like a pirate, my dude. Why don't you just be Dread Pirate Roberts from now on? Yep. And it is perfectly tied with a bow. And like, you just know in your heart Fezzik is going to go become his first mate bodyguard and they're just going to sail off and platonically be a thing for the rest of their lives. Uh, it's it's wonderful. And, and to go back, I think it's another reason as to why this script is like damn near bulletproof. They, they establish so clearly the Dread Pirate Roberts is a persona. It is a mask. It is not a person. Molded, Inigo Montoya will become, at very least, the fourth person to be the Dread Pirate Roberts. Which, by the way, is how superheroes should work. Absolutely. Like, it, it respects legacy in a way that comic books never will. <laughs> no, but, but it's how Robin works. It is how Robin works. You're right. Because there's always a Robin. Oh, my God. Yeah, I, I didn't make that connection, but that's absolutely right. The Dread Pirate Robin. Jesus, the, the Dread Pirate Robin Wright. There's a shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Who, okay, besides this, is the most charming human to walk the earth. So, like, William Goldman, um, in his prologue of a recently republished version of Princess Bride, where it's like, okay, this is the version that got released after the movie was made. He has a prologue of, like, or a prologue of, what it's like to walk into a room full of movie actors and be a short, 
slightly balding kind of unattractive dude and he's like and i was in a room with the most beautiful people i'd ever seen well and yeah the real quote is like he like he he takes a pot shot at himself in a way that is uncomfortable enough i'm not going to do the direct quote but he calls himself very unattractive at the very least and here's robin wright looking like a literal angel and just like it's so nice to meet you. <laughs> Which I would like to think that William Goldman like looked over at Wallace Shawn and was like, oh, thank God. We can hang. <laughs> There's another one of me. Meanwhile, Wallace Shawn was told incorrectly that he was the second choice after Danny DeVito and spent the entire time filming terrified that he was going to like make a mistake and be fired because he wasn't the first choice anyway. I know, that's heartbreaking, right? Poor Wallace Shawn! Wallace Shawn is delightful and has the the least screen time out of any of the main characters. Mm -hmm. But I want to state, I think the Iacane powder scene is like the scene of the movie. It is like the thing that everyone thinks of first, or at least I do. I think of the sword fight scene first. Interesting, okay. And then rolling down a hill. But Iacane Powder is absolutely up there. I think someone in my like seventh grade drama class did that monologue. Oh, sure. I can see that. Yeah. Never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line. So truly wonderful. Like the entire cast is amazing. Um, Chris Sarandon is like the Barry Bostwick of this film. And that's a joke for two people. Okay. <laughs> um, and he and he's wonderful. And like, I did not realize he goes on and becomes the voice of Jack Skellington. So there's a fucking mind blower for you. Oh my goodness. Um, no, this, this film is like, truly amazing in so many ways and i'm just trying to think if there's anything oh we haven't talked about billy crystal we haven't we barely did okay because here's the thing like in my mind the iacane powder scene is like the last great moment like the middle of the film is good and there's nothing wrong with it and your brain kind of just shorthands between the Iacane powder scene and the Miracle Max scene. Mm-hmm. Because Billy Crystal and Carol Kane are so damn delightful in that role. Well, that leads us perfectly into, do you want to talk about our Oscars? Yes, let's go ahead. <laughs> Since you basically already said yours. Since I'm kind of talking about it, yes. On every episode of Cult Fiction, we believe that uh, films deserve at least a couple Oscars, a little bit of love. It truly is stunning that The Princess Bride was not even nominated for anything. I, I truly think that, like... In a hindsight 2020 kind of thing, Rob Reiner would walk away with a nomination. William Goldman would walk away with a couple of Oscars. And all of that said, my Oscar for The Princess Bride is funniest, greatest comedic couple in all of cinema to Billy Crystal and Carol Kane for Miracle Max and his wife. Valerie. Valerie. Excuse me. 
Witch, witch. I'm not a witch, I'm your wife. <laughs> and I say this because like, they are so funny. They work so well together. They are two comedic titans of their own era. They make Andre the Giant get a bruised and cracked rib from trying not to laugh on set with their antics. I'm pretty sure most of Miracle Max's shit is like improv. Oh, yeah. And they have a single scene. I think that's something people like don't remember or, or at least don't think about. I certainly don't. They have like four minutes in the entire movie and they're some of the funniest four minutes ever like they pack more comedy into a shorter amount of time than anyone which is why i feel like truly like they they deserve to be in the conversation for greatest comedic couple on screen in cinema period period I love that. That's wonderful. I think similarly, my Oscar is most quotable. Yes. Because that scene is brilliant. The rhyming scene on the boat is brilliant. The, you seem a decent fellow, I hate to kill you. I, you seem a decent fellow, I hate to die. Like there is so much of this movie that just ingrained itself into culture there's a shortage of perfect breasts in the world it would be a pity to damage yours um i regularly say life is pain highness anyone who tells you otherwise is selling something Mm -hmm. so much so that that became just kind of a quote that is said in my household (laughs) (laughs) like i'm in pain life is pain highness i love that i think this like propagated the word inconceivable Absolutely. And people saying, you keep using that word, I don't think it means what you think it means. Which is a regular conversation that I have with friends. Anybody want a peanut? Their rhyming game is the gentle masculinity I am here for. It very much is. It's so cute. It's how they take care of each other. And mm, sub-Oscar to their gentle masculinity. Indeed. All of that said, and I think you're right, I, I think that this is one of the most quotable films ever made. And I appreciate your Oscar and I don't diminish your Oscar, but I think it needs to be said because, I mean, it is it is the thing. My quote for this film is, hello, my name is Nigo Antoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Mm-hmm. I just got chills just fucking saying it. Like, it is right up there with tears in rain to me. Maybe slightly below to me personally, but it is one of the... It is how you make a perfect moment in cinema. Yeah. Like the moment where he finally kills Rugen and he finishes the quote with, I want my father back, you son of a bitch. Perfect. Top 10 moment in all of film. You know what? I'm just now realizing it's up there with Molly Weasley's Not My Daughter, You Bitch. Sure. Same energy. Same exact energy. Oh, I love that. That's wonderful. And I love your quote because, of course, that's the quote you think of when you think of this movie. Yeah. Yeah, Aww. this this is a wonderful movie, and it's also The Mandy Patinkin Show, and it's a wonderful movie, and I love every <laughs> performance, and it's The Mandy Patinkin Show. <laughs> and also, he aged so well. Oh, yeah. He just looks like someone you want to drink with and then have, like, pet your head and tell you stories. And he probably will, because he's a goddamn delight. He is a goddamn delight. You know who else is a goddamn delight? Kevin Bacon. Kevin Bacon. (laughs) Okay, so 
I'm pretty proud of myself because I did this by myself and I can do it in two. Okay. Okay. So Billy Crystal was in parental guidance with Marissa Tomei. Okay. And Marissa Tomei was in Crazy Stupid Love with Kevin Bacon. Brilliant. Okay. Good on you. Thank you. I don't mean to diminish this because I I did not think of this off the top of my head. I did stumble upon this just kind of reviewing IMDb's. This can be done in one because no. Christopher Guest is in a brief role, but like a a oh yeah, that's Christopher Guest role in A Few Good Men. I thought we took A Few Good Men off the table. No, we took Apollo 13 off the table. (laughs) (laughs) And in all likelihood, we shouldn't take anything off the Kevin Bacon table because it's all good. It is all good. Maybe maybe if you're watching The Woodsman, go in knowing what that movie's about, but... (laughs) (laughs) You know what else is all good and lovely? Is it our list? Is it our our list? I I think the crypt is very good and lovely, and it takes care of us, and it shows us awful movies, but then it's like, it's okay. Here, watch The Princess Bride and remember how much you love it. Um, Yes, every episode of Cult Fiction, we put our hands in the Hollywood crypt, which is a list of cult films that I apply through a random number generator. And before I run that generator, I just want to remind everybody, The Princess Bride technically is cult. Inconceivable. (laughs) But with that said, uh, also cult, maybe theoretically, are 282 films that we have to choose from. And on next episode, we are going to be watching number 62. (laughs) Number 62 is going to be a drop in quality. Very interested. Okay. Next time on Cult cult Fiction, we're going to be watching the uh, 1975 dystopian grindhouse film, Death Race 2000. Okay. Okay. This is uh, David Carradine in, like, a death car. Okay. They're, they're, okay, Crypt. Okay. Let's see. Where can we watch Death Race 2000? Uh, it is available on Amazon Prime and 2 TV at time of recording. Death Race 2000 is a 1975 American science fiction action film produced by Roger Corman. Oh, shit. I didn't know that. We got a Roger Corman. Okay. Roger Corman is famous for making the worst movies for the least money ever. But also, like, so many important people in Hollywood cut their teeth doing, like, PA jobs for Roger Corman. Like, this was basic. People would call Roger Corman film finishing school, which I'll talk about more on the next episode. Okay. <laughs> well, that's all for this edition of Cult Fiction. Join us next time, maybe, if I don't throw myself off the side of a building, as we watch this shit if you want to follow or review or rate our podcast so i am motivated to watch this piece of crap please follow us on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts 
We'll close the crypt for now. But please join us next time as we watch the film that inspired Wacky Races the cartoon, Death Race 2000. For Stephanie Johnson, I've been Andy Bowell. I'm so mad at you. <laughs> Not the first or last time you'll say that.